Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Today I'm talking to Professor Graham Thornicroft, a professor of community psychiatry here at the Institute of Psychiatry. Now, he and some co-authors have published an intriguing paper in the May issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry, 2007, and it's an editorial entitled Prison Mental Health in Reach Services. So, Graham, one of the things you're talking about is this this new innovation of the idea of in-reach services for prisons. Tell me a bit about what an in-reach service is. Well, let's take as the starting point, Raj, the idea that many of us are familiar with, which is community mental health teams serving a particular sector or area in the community. And we know that in England now we'll have two types of teams, general teams looking after all comers, maybe for a catchment area of 50, 60, 80,000 people, often with about four or 600 people on the books, essentially people with severe mental illness, either people with psychotic disorders or chronic depression or chronic personality disorders, for example. So they're already based in the community. They're serving their own community. So that's, if you like, the same location. So if we switch that idea and we think of a community mental health team, for example, based in the community, not going out to its community, but going to a specific, in this case, a walled community, namely those people inside a prison. So that's the idea. You've got something very similar to a community mental health team, which has this, uh, if you like, uh, sitting audience of people already within an institution. And there are then two ideas. First of all, to give treatment to those people while they are incarcerated, but also, very important, which is to link them up so that they have ongoing contact with mental health teams outside prison when they're released if they need it. And it's that linking which is the key element, because very often at present, people who are in prison may get some treatment, but they're discharged, off they go, and they actually don't connect with the local mental health services. They get worse, they relapse again, that may actually cause recidivism or reoffending, and you get this revolving door, people in and out and out of prison. Now, this is a very hot topic at the moment, uh, the mental health of people in prison. So let's, I'm going to ask you a bit about what was happening before and what was um, not satisfactory about it. But first of all, let's start with, um, you, you come up with a very startling figure that you, you mentioned at the beginning of the paper. You say as many as nine out of every ten prisoners in the UK display evidence of one or more mental disorders. That's a staggering statistic. It is staggering, and of course it depends exactly how you define this. If we start with the, the more disabled end of the spectrum, we know that in the British population as a whole, up to about nearly 1%, in fact it's about half a percent for most of the country, of people have a psychotic disorder. Now if you then look at people in prison, you get at least 10 times higher rates, up to 8% of people in prison have a psychotic disorder. So we've got a real concentration of people with severe mental illnesses sitting there, quite often not getting any treatment or not sufficient treatment, and of course as we know they can't be compulsorily treated in prison anyway. Then if you take the the band of people with anxiety and depressive disorders, we know the general population that's going to be about 20%. In prison it's more like 30 or 40%. But the big band, which is uh, quite often forgotten about in prison, are people with antisocial personality disorders. Now again, do you count them as treatable or not? Do you count them as needing hospital treatment or not? But by the nature of their offending, quite often severe and violent offending, then those people are diagnosable as having antisocial personality disorders as well. And of course, quite often, people have one or two or three or four diagnoses at one time. They may have a psychotic disorder and be depressed and be suicidal and have a substance misuse disorder and have an antisocial personality disorder all in, you know, in one particular person. 
But if the figure really is as high as that, nine out of every ten prisoners, I would have expected then, uh, as part of each prison, there to be a very large mental health unit. But I'm not aware that such a thing exists. Um, well, what you find in prisons are these things called healthcare wings, which are like wards within the prison to treat people with health problems. And sometimes they have a specialist section for mental health problems. Basically, it's a general, uh, it's a general physical and mental health care unit. And they might cater for 10 or 20 people out of 1,000 people in prison, for example. So they're only taking the really most clearly unwell people for treatment. And the rest may get a bit of treatment, but not much. I would have thought as well, though, this is not a particularly popular area for mental health workers to get involved in, to have to go into prisons and treat people in prison. Well, let's look at the history first. Until last year, until 2006, oddly enough, the NHS didn't have responsibility for people in prison. We had something called the Prison Medical Service, and over years and years, people felt that the quality of care that they provided really wasn't up to scratch. And fortunately now, that's been disbanded, and fortunately now we have the NHS fully responsible for the, all the health care, physical and mental health care for people in prisons. Now, that means that we can start to create a whole new scenery. We can have these in-reach teams, we can have links, we can have court diversion systems. We can actually start to connect the mental health needs of offenders with the wider set of services outside. And some of these new teams, uh, oddly enough, may be quite attractive. So if you're a community psychiatric nurse, you might work in a general team, for example, in Croydon, where we work. You might have a caseload of 30 or 40, or you might see an advertisement saying, new forensic in-reach team, caseload of 6 or 8 or 10, very intensive, uh, lots of new funding for the new team. You might think this is a pretty attractive proposition. So I think we're actually seeing a focus upon these specialist teams now, which may be really very attractive for staff to move into, even though some of the clients to deal with are pretty challenging. So you, you're saying in your editorial that this, this landscape is, is kind of virgin territory and we have, we have a, a possibility to shape it. Um, is there a danger that we might make some mistakes, though, that, that we might repeat mistakes that have been made in the NHS? Well, as we suggest in our paper, there are a number of dangers about how this basically very sound idea might start to drift or even go off the tracks. One of them is an idea that's sometimes in military terms called mission drift. As you start wanting to do A, then somebody says, let's do A and B, and somebody else says, let's do A and B and C, and eventually do none of them properly. What this means in this case is the original idea is let's identify and treat people in prison who've got severe mental illnesses. For example, people with psychotic disorders. And that, in fact, is the original intention of the inreach teams. But very quickly, within a couple of years, policy said, well, there are lots of people with other types of mental illnesses, for example, substance misuse, for example, depression, who aren't being picked up, not being treated very well. Let's ask the inreach teams to do them as well, because they're already there, they're experienced, they're trained professionals. And the problem with that is you start increasing the caseload, you're discharging people early, and maybe you're not giving the right treatment to people with severe mental illness at all, so you're sort of diluting the effect. And I think there is a risk that the in-reach teams will now suffer from that type of dilution. There are um, a group of people um, out in the community, many of them could be described as, as tabloid and newspaper editors, who would say that prisoners don't deserve um, good health care. What, what, what are the benefits uh, to the community in general of providing good, good psychiatric care? Well, let's to take that argument head on. Uh, I completely disagree with that. Some people might say those in self-inflicted injuries wouldn't deserve having treatment. So, for example, newspaper editors who may be drinking too much through their own volition may not deserve any treatment in due course when they have addiction disorders themselves. So I don't take that case. I think if people have health-related problems, they deserve the full treatment and support that's provided within the NHS, wherever they are, in this case, whether they're in prison or out of prison. 
I thought there was also some research across across many different countries which show that as um, hospital inpatient psychiatric populations declined, prison populations seemed to go up almost in correspondence. So that almost it might be the same group of people that some, some of them might end up, um, depending on the service that was available, in a psychiatric inpatient unit or in a prison. Is, is that the case, do you think? Or, or, or is it the prison is making these people seriously mentally ill? Because let's go back to that 9 in 10 figure about how come it's such a high yeah. figure. Well, there's no evidence that for the majority of people in prison with a mental illness, that they've had, if you like, fresh onsets of mental illness, uh, often because of being in prison. Now, clearly, there may be circumstances in prison which may be particularly distressing. You may see some people starting, for example, particularly depressive or anxiety-related episodes. And it's clear that sometimes the circumstances in prison do encourage uh, despondency, despair, or acts of self-harm, and occasionally suicide. But the vast majority of people already have a pre-existing current mental illness or history of mental illness before going into prison. So I don't think it causes mental illness as such, usually. Now, in relation to the other point you made, Raj, about sometimes in the jargon, this is called trans-institutionalization, meaning people who used to be in the large psychiatric hospitals, or would have been today if they existed, are now put up in other institutions, so prisons, for example. And there's a little bit of evidence for that, but not very much, in fact, because the large majority of people with all types of mental disorder are not institutions, at least in Western European countries at all. They're actually out in the community. So I think a much more important question is, those people who are needing health care, wherever they are, they may be in hospital, they may be in psychiatric prison, so they may be in prison, they may be in other forms of institution, let's say um, detention centres for asylum seekers. Are they being assessed? Are we picking up mental illnesses and are they getting the right treatment at the right time? Now, from your editorial, you seem quite enthusiastic about the potential offered by these in-reach services. Some people might be a bit surprised by that. They might say, well, you know, prisons are very grim places. There's not maybe much you can offer. What can you really do for people stuck in a prison in terms of improving their mental health? There wouldn't really be much to offer, they would argue. You could take the grim point of view, or you could reverse it. And you could say, look at the advantages of these as treatment settings. You have people already sitting there. They're not going to not answer the door. <laughs> They're not going to go and live with their sister-in-law for a beard and get lost. You know exactly where they are. So you've got the conditions which uh, would favour beginning to get to know somebody, establishing a therapeutic relationship. You've also got, to some extent, conditions that make it more difficult for prisoners to get hold of substances. So if you're actually trying to deal with drug or alcohol misuse or dependency, then you've got already favourable circumstances to begin a period of treatment. So I think in some ways, this is, it's not ideal, but it's actually in some ways quite a favourable starting point to establish a therapeutic relationship and to establish an episode of care. Now, you and I are both consultants working in the NHS, and one of the key issues around at the moment is the notion of clinical leadership. Who would lead these teams, and, and why, if it was going to be a consultant psychiatrist, why would they want to take this on? Well, the, the situation in most community mental health teams, and in fact in-reach teams, are a type, or a new type, or hybrid type of community mental health team, is that the team leader usually isn't a doctor at all. It would often be a nurse, maybe a social worker, occasionally an occupational therapist, but it would be somebody who's got a background of what we now call care coordination or key working, who then takes on an administrative leadership role. Now, some, in some countries, of course, people say that's ridiculous. Of course, you have to have a doctor as the, you know, the team leader, and that is the tradition in many countries, in many parts of Europe, for example. 
but it depends upon what types of leadership is necessary to get the job done. In fact, if it's a question of sorting out next week's rota and who's going to come in the mornings or evenings, I mean, do you want to do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, well, I wouldn't want to do that. If it's a question of taking a leadership for the training of the junior psychiatrist, then I presume you'd want that responsibility, I would as well. So I think it's not a question of a single type of block model of leadership, but actually a more nuanced understanding about different types of leadership and how they mesh together into an effective team. And for a lot of the direct clinical leadership day-to-day, I think it's much more appropriate that a senior nurse, very experienced clinician, or maybe a senior social worker, is playing that role closely and closely liaison with the medics as well, who are undertaking their particular uh, types of leadership uh, in conjunction with that. So where are we at this moment in time in terms of enriched teams? Are they going to be rolling out across the country? Well, they're already in the process of rolling out. Now, we have to be a little bit cautious here about teams. Now, sometimes... We've had, historically, you know, a CPN, a community psychiatric nurse or two, from the local area who's popped in and you know, kept an eye on the, the prison. And what's happened in practice is that these have now been formalised as an in-reach team. Perhaps they've been given a different lead heading, but nothing much has changed. So we can't say that this is a revolutionary change in all parts uh, of England. But in many areas now, we do see that there are teams, often with three, four, five staff, often including doctors and social workers and nurses, and they're beginning to form a new layer of care. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just to treat people in prison. The key thing is actually to get them linked up with the teams outside in the community. It's that bridging role which is very, very important for their new function. So let's take your enthusiasm and run with it. What, what do you think we'll see in the future if this, if this thing works? Um, because I notice a lot in my ward rounds, and I've just come from a ward round, we often see many people who've come out of prison la- labouring under really quite severe mental health difficulties, um, and there seems to be a link between the two. Um, I, w- will my life change? Will I very, very much less likely to see people come out of prison uh, not, not having received much treatment at all and and so on? Well, I, I don't know about your life, but let me, let me sketch what I think will probably happen in the next, maybe let's, five years in England. The, the current pattern for listeners from other countries is that we have these general mental health teams covering all of England, and in addition to that, we have three types of specialist mental health team, again, across most areas now through, throughout the country. We have early intervention teams for young people with psychosis. We have home treatment teams to p- treat people at home in a crisis for up to a month or so. And we have assertive outreach teams, um, very similar to the American model of assertive community treatment for longer-term people with psychosis who are difficult to engage. Now, at the moment, the specialist teams don't really touch people in prison. Now, they may pick them up on release from prison, but as long as they're, let's say, long-term prisoners, then the specialist teams don't get involved. So I think there is an active question for us to think about, which is do those teams then spread their responsibility to include people physically within the catchment area but within particular walls, for example, within prisons, or do we want to have some other specialist function, for example, a specialist, um, early intervention indeed for young people who happen to be in prison, who have a psychosis, who shouldn't necessarily be penalised by having worse treatment because they are incarcerated compared with their equivalent people, same age, same condition, who happen to be out in the community at the same time. So I think that's what the future holds for us, those questions. And what about the forensic psychiatric profession? What do they think about this? Well, I would say that there are, there's a broad church of views, uh, I think, on this matter. As you know, the forensic specialty in itself is a very broad um, range, and there would be some people who think that early intervention, meeting people in the community, going to bail hostels, going to court diversion, makes a lot more sense than treating people already well into years of a psychiatric history. On the other hand are people who love 
going to court. And who would, you know, the, what they most interest them is defending a client against a homicide charge, for example. So I think that there are mixed views according to particular interests of forensic colleagues. Mm -hmm. Professor Graham Thornycroft, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Roger.